how you communicate information about a crisis is just as important as what you say about it. I'm Edward Siegel, a Leadership Strategy Senior Contributor for Forbes.com and author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. My guest today is Karen Friedman, a business communications coach. She'll share her advice and insights about communicating information about crisis situations, and she'll discuss the best practices for making remote and in-person presentations about a government or corporate crisis. Well, thanks for joining us today, Karen. I really appreciate you being with me today. My pleasure. Tell me, how important is appearance and body language when communicating difficult news or important information about a crisis situation? You know, Ed, uh, body language and nonverbal is important regardless of whether it's crisis or just everyday, you know, internal, external meetings. So any public situation, you know, think about it this way, combined with what you say, facial expressions, you know, whether we're smiling, whether we're scowling, our mannerisms, the way you stand, the way you sit, um, it, it helps you connect with people and it makes a difference in how you're perceived. So your, your body language can do one of two things. It can either put people at ease or it can make them feel uncomfortable. So let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, you cross your arms, right? Or you lean back like this. You kind of start like maybe shifting around in your seat or your, or your eyes. You're going, oh, let me look over here. Let me look down here. And, you know, you're, you're moving around a lot. Well, well, maybe you're trying to get comfortable or just kind of find your footing. But to other people, you can appear as if you are uncomfortable. You know, one of the things that, that we see people doing, for example, in, in interview prep and in media training is they'll sit there and, and they'll go like this. They'll nod. Now, you know, and I know that they are probably nodding because they're, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I, I kind of agree with you. But to the public, especially in a crisis situation, to the person on the other end, they can look as if they're nodding in agreement with a negative question or even an accusatory question. So yeah, they might be nodding as if they are thinking or they're responding or agreeing with your question, but that nod can also suggest something very negative. So you have to be really careful. All of that, all of that is body language or what we call nonverbal body language. Is there a difference though between a in-person and virtual settings when communicating during a crisis? Yeah, the biggest difference is how we use eye contact right here, whether you have glasses on, like I'm about to put them back on, or whether you don't. So think about it this way. In person, you have a wide room, right? So people are sitting in that room, you know, if they are in person and not virtual, they're sitting in the room and they are looking at the person talking, or they're kind of looking around the room. On the screen, like like this, it's smaller. So if there are multiple people in a room, here's what people virtually normally do, which they should not. They do what they do in person. They look around the screen. So let me let me give you an example. Let's say the person on my left at the top of the screen is talking and I want to speak back at them. I'll, I'll go like this. Now look at what's happening, right? I look like I am looking off and not looking at you or the person at the bottom of the screen is talking. 
So the speaker will go, yeah, 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 Ed, Ed, I, I get what you're saying. Now, look, I'm, I'm looking down and maybe you see the top of my head. And so virtually, we have to mimic what we do in person. We have to look right here at the camera, even if the person over there is talking or the person up there is talking, because we have to mimic making that eye contact like we would in a room. So the key is look at the camera to mimic making eye contact like you would do if you were actually standing in front of them. And in a crisis situation, difficult conversation, the you know what hits the fan stuff for a company, you know, if you're over here, people don't know what you're looking at. Or if I'm looking up here, this is a, another monitor I have, right? And I'm looking up here because I, I want to see the slide or see my notes or, or see you on the monitor. I look like I'm all over the place. So once again, steady, direct eye contact. That means look at the camera on your computer, iPad, phone, whatever device you're using. Well, what about if there's a combination of virtual and in-person presentations or a combination of video and audio? Does anything really change regarding how you communicate? It, it does. And, that, and that's a really excellent question and point that you brought up because what's happening now, and it will be happening even more, is we are working more and more in a hybrid world. So this becomes increasingly important, the combination of virtual and in-person. Here, here's an example. Let's say you are a company spokesperson and you are speaking on video maybe to thousands of employees. You may be in a room where there are people, but there are also monitors all over the room where people at different sites around the country or perhaps around the world are joining in. So it's our natural instinct to look up and go, hey, Indiana, how are you? But look what happened. I'm, I'm now looking off and it looks like I've left people out. So once again, that whole idea of looking at the camera, if you look at the camera right here and you say, Indiana, Los Angeles, you know, uh, Kentucky, great to have you join us. It looks like I'm talking to all of them versus over here because there's no camera up on those monitors. You see what I mean? So when you look at the camera, as we've been talking about, it makes your remote audiences feel included. And that's key, making remote audiences feel involved. And so that is uh, something that people are really going to have to learn when they combine virtual, sitting here like we're doing, and in-person. So a really easy way to think about this is, let's say you're, you're in the room, right? You've got that big room with a thousand people. And you're walking around the room and you're in your groove and you're looking at the people in the front row and the people back there and you know you're having a great time. If you want to make those remote audiences feel included, come back to that camera in the room. When you're live in the room, come back to that camera so you make those remote audiences feel that you're talking to them as well. Karen, do you think it's ever appropriate to walk away from an interview with a reporter, especially when your body language says no comment, but there's no way of uh, yeah. putting the situation uh, into any kind of context or perspective? Well, I, I think I think there are times, Ed, where it is appropriate. And with social media and so many citizen journalists, the landscape has changed dramatically. At least it certainly changed from, you know, back in the days when when I was a reporter. And so yeah, here's why I think sometimes that it is appropriate. Uh, today, there are many activists who pose as reporters 
or there are what I call what, what we call citizen journalists. Somebody's going to post something on social media. They have absolutely no background at all as a journalist. They're just a person who has an opinion and they're, you know, they want to give that opinion. So I guess it was, I don't know, about maybe about a month ago uh, or two months ago, um, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla was at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And he was accosted, literally, you can find the video on YouTube, um, by two activists who were posing as journalists. And they started hurling all these questions at him and, and accusations at him. And they're, you know, kind of like they're, they're right in his face, you know, with the mic. And he kept walking, just head up, you know, no expression, no reaction. He just ignored them. And you might say, well, doesn't that make him look defensive? Or doesn't that make him look like he is uh, avoiding them? Well, no, because granting them an interview on the spot, a confrontational interview like that, I think is worse than ignoring them. And even, you know, now let's say it was a reporter that he knew from ABC and somebody he knew really well. Well, he might make a split second decision that, yeah, I'm going to talk to that person. But, but even if it was a, a mainstream reporter versus an activist, you know, posing as a reporter, you have no time to prepare. You, you know, you, you could get all tongue-tied. You're just as human as anybody else, even if you're a CEO. So in that particular case, my advice would be, great to see you. Listen, um, I'm on my way to a meeting. Uh, why don't you call my office when we can talk about this in more detail and, and I can put some thought into this? So that would make that individual seem more thoughtful and they're not looking like they're not being cooperative, um, but they're not going to grant that interview right on the spot. Activists are different. Just keep walking. And I guess in this case, he probably knew that they were activists. You mentioned your career, your previous career as a journalist. What in your experience as a reporter has helped you in your new career as a uh, trainer and a public speaker? So, you know, I, it's interesting that you that you bring that up. I, I always say that so much of what I learned back in my day as a reporter uh, became so helpful to what I do today, but I didn't know it back then. All right. So, you know, when I was a reporter and, and as you know, Ed, I worked at stations around the country, ending up at ABC uh, in Philly many years ago. What a reporter has to do is you have to take a lot of complex information, a lot of stuff. And you boil that, you know, 10 pounds of stuff into a two pound bag. So when you're working with spokespeople, you have to teach them how to do the same thing. They are extremely close to their information. Often they want to tell people everything they know, but people don't want to hear about everything they know. So how do you take those 10 points, for example, and, and break it down into the two or three most important points? How do you hit that headline and really give people information they need? So that was the really big takeaway from being a reporter, because I might have, as that reporter, I might have spent, let's say, eight hours out on a scene. And I come back and it's, I don't know, let's say I'm on the six o'clock news live. And I come back and it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I've got goodness knows how many, you know, how much stuff to go through. And I can't possibly put eight hours of stuff into a minute 30 or two minutes that I've been assigned. So I've got to break it down. It's very difficult. And, you know, I have a background in it, right? But then teaching spokespeople how to do that uh, is even more difficult. But, but that's the, 
that that was the number one in in switching careers. And it's been quite a while, by the way. You know, we've been we've been doing we meaning my team of people. We've been at this now. I know you're going to find this hard to believe. Twenty five years, actually, almost twenty six. Um, so so that was number one. The the other thing is is really helping people understand what a message is and what a message isn't. A message is not a slogan. It is not an advertisement. It is not a PR campaign. It is not your company vision that says, you know, we are wonderful and we have the best employees in the world and those employees are going to make a dip, whatever. That's not a message. A message is about other people. So in my TV days, it was about the reader, the listener, the viewer, and it still is. It's about your audience. So if you're talking to a financial audience, what do they care about? If you're talking to a trade magazine of, um, oh, I don't know, you know, pharmacists, what do they care about? If you're talking to a, a group of crisis managers, what do they care about? So you really have to, number one, zero in on that audience. Who are they and what do they care about? Two, how am I going to take what I want to say, that message, flip it around so it's about them and not about me and my company? Well, as important as messages are, can you share the best practices when it comes to communicating that message in a remote situation? Yeah. So um, number one, and, and we talked about this, you know, for, for a few minutes, number one is that looking at the camera. So a, a couple of thoughts on this. Um, often, I, I don't right now just because of the desk I'm sitting at, but a lot of times people's desks are lower. So you'll, you'll see somebody, they're kind of like squinched down a little bit like that. So what, what I advise is, depending on how you're set up, um, Take a couple of big books, for those of us that still have books, take a couple of big books, you know, like kind of old-fashioned dictionary-sized books, and sit your PC or your device on top of those books. And that way you are eye-level with the camera. So you always want to be eye-level so we're not looking down and we're not looking up. People tend to look around at their monitors. Once again, we want to come back to the camera. Always come back to the camera. Next, nobody expects anybody to be perfect in, in this virtual world. I mean, if you have the means and you're a CEO and you have a team of people and you have PR people that can help you, great. You, maybe you want to be a little bit more perfect than the rest of us. But we, we do want to take up space. So what I mean is, I just mentioned like people leaning back. Well, a lot of times people can be, when they're like this, they have a lot of headspace above them. So we want to think of this almost like a TV interview. If you watch TV, some of those, you know, magazine shows, like a 60 Minutes or something, and they go in for that, you know, that tight shot. I know you're not on a magazine show, but regardless, even virtually, you don't want all that space, right, above your head. You want to take up space. You want to fill up that screen. Now, here's a, here's a difference also when you're sitting and standing. And I, and I want to talk about this for a few minutes if we have the time. So when we're sitting, like right now, I'm sitting, I'm filling up, I believe, I'm not looking at myself at the moment, but most of the screen, okay? But, and so that means that, wait, let me stop myself. That means that I don't want to do this. I want to gesture because I don't want to be like super stiff like this. I want to gesture, but I want to be careful 
not to do it all over the screen. Now, if I were to move back, let me see if I can do this without disconnecting myself. If I were to move back and I kind of like have more room and, and maybe I'm standing, then I am able to have bigger gestures because I have more space around me. So it's important virtually to be aware of the difference. It's not the same as being in person. Gesture, but don't do all that stuff. You know, if you if you want to um, be more animated, if you're standing, let's say you're you're. If, when I do a presentation or a keynote, um, when I'm when I'm virtual, I don't sit at a desk like I'm sitting right now. On the other side of my office, I have a stand-up desk. You know, you can get these really inexpensively on on Amazon or your site of choice. And I have that desk standing up, and that way I can stand further back from the camera and mimic being in person. So that's good advice if you have a CEO in a difficult situation or any situation, uh, maybe doing a town hall meeting, uh, being able to be st to stand up in a virtual situation. A um, couple of other things that are really important. Pausing, breathing, stop. Don't keep talking a million miles a minute. Everybody will get exhausted and everybody will stop listening to you. And, and this is in person really or virtual, but virtually even more because people tend to talk over each other. So don't be afraid of the silence. Outside voice. So when I was a reporter way back when, I would stand in front of a camera live, you know, whatever time of night it was. And it was the camera and me and the camera person. Very similar to what we're doing now without the camera person. So if I talked in my normal inside voice, I'd be saying, hey, Ed, how you doing? What's going on? And little by little, it would seem flat and not very energized. So what I learned to do as that TV reporter is come through the camera. So it's like bringing your voice an octave up so you're energized and you're animated and you're excited, but you're not yelling. So the people in the, in the next room over, I'm sure they can hear me right now. Oh, well. But otherwise, I might not sound that engaged and that animated. So I tell people, I know that Aunt Mary probably told you, shh, Ed, use your inside voice. And I'm saying, Ed, use your outside voice. So it's a little bit of a different take. Um, two more things that I think are important to, important to point out. One of the things that I learned um, back in that day, you know, looking at that, that camera, standing there talking to a camera when nobody except the camera person is there, uh, speak to one person. So if, if you, it's kind of like writing an article. If you write an article and you're trying to write for the masses, you're not going to have that personal touch. But if you're speaking to one person or you're trying to write for one person, uh, it's more conversational and it becomes warmer and it becomes a little bit more personal. So if you're a CEO and you're addressing employees virtually, don't think of address, addressing a thousand employees. Think of looking at this camera, again, as if you're talking to one person. Lastly. Whenever we are in person, but, certain but certainly virtually, a lot of things happen. So in the studio, a light might crash. Somebody might come running in. When I was out in the field, there were a lot of crazy things that went on because people wanted to see if they could get you to laugh. They would do really nutty things to see if they could, you know, kind of get you. You have to tune all of that out. None of it matters. Your entire focus is right here. 
And if something happens there, or, you know, somebody drops this bottle of water on your foot, ignore it. And that is one thing that you, you learn in a studio and you learn to get better at, to not jerk your head or not go, oh, what, what's going on over there? Keep your eyes focused on the camera. A lot of people, in order to keep their eyes focused on the camera, will use teleprompters. Uh, or even if they're not on camera, they're using a microphone. They don't want to distract it by the notes in front of them. Are there any yeah. tricks of the trade you can share about uh, the do's and don'ts of uh, using a teleprompter? Well, the most people don't know how to use a teleprompter. <laughs> and it's really not their fault because they never had any training. So it, teleprompter, the, the biggest thing about the teleprompter is the speed in which it runs. And so when you work with somebody, a prompter operator, and they know you, uh, they're going to get used to the rhythm in your voice. So the first thing is practice. Uh, when I say rhythm in your voice, what I'm really referring to is speed. So the first thing is practice. You know, if you talk really fast, they're going to need to move that faster. But if you talk slow, they're going to need to slow it down. So practice first so they kind of get the, the feel for you and, and how fast or slow you go. Second, um, if you're struggling to see it, then ask the, it's easy enough today with computers, ask the operator to make the font bigger. Um, also to have a little bit more white space. I'll, I'll tell you a trick from my days of, of anchoring the news. So when, when, you, um, when you're looking at a teleprompter, you know, what you're really looking at, well, two things. If you're looking at a camera, like in a studio, it's kind of like a mirror. If you're looking here, we now have these self-teleprompters and people kind of run them the, themselves, but it can all run together. So you want to have white space, just a little bit of white space. Let's say your, your first paragraph is, uh, it's really sunny today, you know, here in Miami, Florida, and I'm glad that all of you can join us. That's your first paragraph. Maybe you just have a little bit of white space there. So then you know to stop and then you move on. But the trick that, that at least for me, and a bunch of us used to do this, is we would take a script. I don't know if you see this, but we would take a script like this, right? And we would make big black slashes. See that top of the paper? Big black slashes that would signal pause. So as the words are running together, if, that, if it says, um, you know, the sky is blue, slash, I would know to go, the sky is blue in other news. So that's, you know, that, that was a really good, that was a really good trick with prompter. Here's, here's another thing, by the way, for being on camera. And this isn't only crisis, but I thought of it as we were talking about prompter, but a lot of people will kind of like go down like this. They want to, you know, okay, I want to look at my notes and here I am. And now you've got my head. So think of it this way back, back in the news business, I might be talking to you like this and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this. I'm going to show you what I wouldn't do and what I would do. I wouldn't say in other news today, blah, blah. I would never do that because now I've left you. So what I would do if I needed to pause and look is something like this, blah, blah, blah. In other news today. So again, that camera, you're virtually or in person, you're always coming back up to the camera. But prompter, prompter's tough. I, I would say if you have never used prompter before, I know they make it look easy on TV, but they have experience. So, you know, do a little practice. Don't go into a cold. 
Do you recommend people become students of how well or sometimes how poorly uh, others in the public eye are doing with their presentations and what they might be able to learn from the successes, mistakes, or failures of others? Oh, absolutely. In fact, what am I, here's my favorite question. I'll see if you know the answer. I'm not putting you on the spot either. Um, if I said to you, uh, hey, Ed, how long do you think the late Steve Jobs prepared for every employee presentation? What's your answer? He probably spent about an hour for every minute that he would speak at a presentation. So not, not a bad answer. Um, and you're probably close, depending on how long his presentations were. But typically, according to the biography I read about him, typically he spent three months <laughs> on every single employee presentation. And I think there's a lot you can learn from somebody like like him, you know, when, when he was here. Um, he didn't use tons of words. He always had a theme. He always had a storyline. And his slides were so basic and so simple. And he didn't go into the mumbo jumbo when the, uh, when the iPhone, I don't know, whatever number came out. He didn't start going, well, it has a faster processor and has faster speed. Look at this. It has a bigger screen. He didn't do any of that. He, he would say things like, you know, back in the early days, he would say things like, this is the Internet in your hand. You know, stuff that people can remember. So I, I say there are so many examples of people that you might see in your work world or people that you can watch on YouTube. Don't, don't try to be them, be you, but think about what do you like about this person? What do you remember? And most of the time when I ask people that, what they'll, their answer will be, oh, I really liked him or her because they told stories. Well, yeah, people remember stories. They don't remember 10 tons of stuff that you dumped at them. So watching people, you'll, you'll see how they presented their content. You'll see their pacing. You know, what, what we just talked about, are they pausing? Or are they going a million miles a minute? You'll see that body language that we've been talking about. TED Talks. TED Talks are a really, really good thing to watch. So when I say this to people, corporate America, CEOs, I'm not giving TED Talks. Well, okay, maybe you're not. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from it. There is a reason. I don't know what the what the number is right now, but it used to be it couldn't be more than 10 minutes or 16 minutes or something. There's a reason that they limit it because people's attention spans go bye-bye and they're not going to listen to you anymore. So absolutely pick people that you like. Don't copy them, but figure out what it is you like about them. But um, I'll tell you a a story that you might appreciate. And I don't, audience, I, it doesn't matter to me what your politics are. So this isn't pol political, but uh, way, way back, former president Bill Clinton was the, he was speaking at the Democratic National Convention. I believe he was the opening or closer or something for Dukakis, who was running at the time. And um, the way he tells the story is he said he was so awful that the only time anybody ever applauded for him was when he said in conclusion, because they were so happy he could get off the stage. And he said, he said that he knew right then that if he wanted to become more, which clearly he did, um, rise in the ranks, he had to make communicating an absolute top priority. And he's not alone. Warren Buffett said the same thing. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? What I would say is, you know, communicating is like any other sport. 
If you want to become good at pickleball, if you want to become a good golfer, if you want to jump in the ring and, and box, um, you got to practice and you have to learn. So maybe you have the gift of gab, maybe you have great personality. Good. You're maybe you're a step ahead of the game. But if you really want to master communications, it's something that you have to practice. Uh, it's something you have to hone. It's 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 lifelong, just like if there's a sport that you love. So if you want to be good at something, communicating, practice. Don't just say, hey, I can do this. Yeah, you can, but you're going to be better if you put some time and effort into it. Well, I certainly enjoyed our conversation. And as always, you had some great advice to share with my audience. So thanks again for being with me on the Crisis Ahead podcast, Karen. Thank you so much, Ed. Really appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Crisis Ahead. My guest today was Karen Friedman, a business communications coach. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for, managing, and recovering from a crisis. Or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you're prepared for it, the better. Produced by HeartCast Media.